Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. This week's topic is genomics. Because it's in the news. But first, Sarah, I believe you have some more fun facts for us. So many. Really hard time saying facts <laughs> there. Fun like facts. Over, it's hard to over enunciate that word. Fun facts. Yeah. yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. Uh, Try it at home. Uh, so <laughs> the first of the fun facts was Davis said he wanted to see a cannabis phylogeny that included hops. So I put one in our notes. Davis, can you yeah, confirm? Yeah, you, you can't see it, but I can see it. And there's it's cannabis sativas right here. And then right underneath it is hops. Oh, interesting. Cumulus lupus. Yeah. Sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Or character. One <laughs> yeah. of the two. Everything Latin. <laughs> so there you go. So it exists. You can find it easy. We can also post it if you're curious. Um, <laughs> Figure 1.2 from some paper. <laughs> from a from a thesis. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I love when you find someone's thesis online and it's like 900 pages. It's like this massive PDF. Yeah. You're like, some poor sucker's soul is trapped in this document. <laughs> So if you want to look at my thesis, it's not that long. The horcrux of academia. Yes. Uh, and then we were wondering, what does a dry flavor mean in oh, alcohol? Yes. Mm -hmm. I saw it, this in your notes. I was like, yes. Yeah. So it means lacking sweetness. So dry mm -hmm. champagne is a champagne that doesn't have a lot of sweetness. Um, and it's where having all or most of the sugar has been fermented to alcohol. Okay. So yeah. there you go. There you go. That's good. Good, good, good finding. You're welcome. Thanks, Miriam Webster. Yeah. Uh, and then we were wondering, rock carvings, are they called petroglyphs? Yes. I was reasonably certain I was yeah. correct about this one. <laughs> um, so yeah, so carving sites are petroglyphs, and then painting sites on rocks and stuff, that's pictographs. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas petroglyphs are carvings that are incised, abraded, or ground by means of stone upon stone tools upon cliff walls, boulders, and flatbed rock surfaces. <laughs> petroglyphs. Excellent. And then more language. Uh, so Davis was lamenting that he didn't figure out the common phones across different languages. Mm. But I couldn't find that either. Phones are just like sounds and phones and phonemes are very similar. It's like the phonemes are just like phones with context. I don't know. There's a mm. lot. But uh, there's differences in specifics. So like um, you can have aspirated or unaspirated phones. So an aspirated phone has like a little puff of air after the letter. So if you think like, if you say the word tick, Davis, say the word tick. Tick. Do you feel there's like a bit of a puff of air after the T? Tick. See, I, yeah, I tried to do this exercise. Yeah, so <laughs> we'll keep going. I tried to do this when I saw it in your notes, and I'm not sure that I noticed the difference, but I'm probably a bad, bad uh, guinea pig for this type of stuff. I'll explain why later, but right. yeah, okay, tick. Okay. So tick has a bit of an air, and I feel like even if you put your hand in front of your face, which... Tick. Okay, tick. fair enough. That's a good it. trick, yeah. And if you go stick... Stick. It, it's, it's stick. The T in stick is unaspirated because it doesn't have the same puff of air that the T in tick has, mm. making it aspirated. So why does it work on you, Davis? Well, it's not that it. It's not that I have any real reason to believe that it doesn't work on me. I just find I have a hard time hearing these types of differences sometimes in words. Um, I've just oh, yeah. always been like that. Like... Um, for the law, like, I've always been told I say, like, pillow and milk and all those words weird, like, those oh. alternate pronunciation words. And people will try to tell me, it's like, no, like, you know, why wouldn't you say it like this? I'm just like, I literally cannot hear the difference between what you're saying and what I'm saying. It happened for a long time for the word, like, nuclear. 
Oh. Because I, I used to say, like, nuclear until someone pointed out that, like, once you point out this specific reason why, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, like, nuclear doesn't have that extra U, so it's yeah. dumb to add it. But with other words like bagel or milk, like, I know I say them weird, and I know I just said them really weird, I'm going to get roasted over it. I can never remember what people get upset about. It, the one like, that I just, bagel. Bagel? Yeah. Bagel. Yeah. Because people, people always tell me that I'm bagel. putting the emphasis on bag rather than ba Goal, or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that was that was terrible. Anyway, moving on. This is just, <laughs> on. but like, and plus, when you focus in on something like tick stick, and you're looking for that aspiration, I felt like I noticed it when I said stick because I was making the mm -hmm. same, and when I was breaking down the syllables. Yeah. But I understand that when you start to really nitty gritty it like that, you're gonna you're gonna input that sound. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think like so. when I was trying to find this in the paper, the phones and stuff. The way they had written it in the paper was they had just, like, strung some letters together. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like that thing when you get, like, pronunciation guides in the dictionary. Yeah. And it was like, oh, here's, like, a phonetic. And it was trying to kind of show, like, so one of them was LBF, right? And it was like, this right. is a sequence of letters you would very rarely see, like, in English for one. Mm -hmm. And a sequence of sounds that you wouldn't really use in English ever. But it's pretty common among all languages, even with very different usage and sound usage, that that specific coordination of sounds would be pretty rare. Okay. So, but you're right. There may not be some, like, universal list or whatever, right? Yeah. But it might have been that author's attempt to explain what a phone was. Very oh. true. Uh, for this one, I found, like, it was less the sound of it, more the feel of it. Yeah. Right? And, like, with, mm -hmm. especially because, like, aspirated and unaspirated has to do with the puff of air. So, like, putting my hand in front of my face and saying both words and trying to say them, like, fairly normally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's as soon as, this is a, a very good example of as soon as you're aware of it, you change how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what happened to me, especially because I was trying to like kind of self-administer what you were describing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then another uh, example thing was of cognate words. So these are words that are related in origin to another word and they're derived from the same source. So they're, uh, they have similar meanings and often similar spellings in two different languages. So like the English brother and the German brother, right? For brother. Would it be Bruder? It doesn't have an umlaut. Yeah, because I was—I—I I, I thought maybe oh you didn't put the umlaut in because it's kind of annoying to put the yeah. umlauts in. The, but... the version I looked at didn't have an umlaut, but it could oh. be bruder. Yeah, uh, and then or English history and Spanish historia, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then the next one was I made an example of German the word for turtle because we talked about how you can like just kind of jam words together in German mm -hmm. and make new words, and it is in fact uh, so German for turtle is shield 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 kreuter. Uh, shield Krota. That's turtle. It's turtle. And that means shield is shield and Krota is toad. So a turtle in German is a shield toad. Mm. What is it about frogs and, and toads against all, all frogs are toads, but not all toads are frogs? I don't remember. It's kind of like squares and rectangles, but I don't remember which is which. I'll look it up for next time. <laughs> uh, and then what museum is the Rosetta Stone in? The British Museum in London. This is why I always forget what it's called, because it's, like, all, like, um, artifacts from, like, the ancient Egyptian world and stuff that yeah. were taken. Yeah. <laughs> so I always forget what it's called, because it's, like, the British Museum, with all of the antiquities from everywhere else. Uh, uh, and then there was the word demotic, and we didn't know what it meant. Mm. Um, but demotic is just an Egyptian hieroglyphic writing of cursive form that was used in handwritten texts. Okay. From the early 7th century BCE until the 5th century CE. Uh, and it can also, demotic can also mean of or relating to the ordinary, everyday, or current form of language, like a vernacular. Oh, okay, right, because it was, because it's often called, like, demotic script, because yeah. it was the way, the way of the time of writing Egyptian hieroglyphics in script. 
Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, and like even now, demonic. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's not demonic. There's no demons. No. Just Just regular stuff. And then I have a correction this week. Yeah. So uh, in our last episode. You threw a Calgary business under a under the bus makes me very sad because i love <laughs> this business very yeah. much um so when we were talking about cults and groups that kind of get culty we talked about like certain yoga groups and i said core fit but i meant crossfit core fit is a lovely obstacle course gym in calgary and if you live in calgary and you've been looking for a new much more fun way to work out you should absolutely go to core fit they're wonderful and it's a lot of fun just careful the intensity that you do your pull-ups with, right, Sarah? Yes, that is where CrossFit <laughs> becomes a problem. CrossFit has an issue. It, like, pushes people into injury, and there's, like, a lot of group support for, like, pushing yourself into these extreme levels, uh, which can cause, you know, damage to your person. So it was CrossFit that has problems, not CoreFit. Everyone should go to CoreFit. Mm. Hopefully it? we don't have a bunch of CrossFit bros come after us now. We'll find out. Yeah, like the Scientologists, they'll be like watching us. Like some muscle bros like watching me from across the street. We'll give them alcohol and then we'll yeah. be able to test if alcohol affects them more. He's going to challenge me <laughs> to a personal record off on the bench press. No. <laughs> I would lose. <laughs> I'll make a flag. Yeah. Dumbbell action only. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there you go. Those are my fun facts and my uh, apology. And correction. Apologies. So, so let's, uh... You sound like a disgraced news anchor. <laughs> I was. I'd like I, to publish a retraction. When I listened through, I was so upset at myself. Uh, but anyway, that's let's how say... I felt when I said intermolecular, <laughs> intramolecular instead of intermolecular. Yeah, because language is important. In I know. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, at least it was before the episode on language, so yes. that's my excuse. But let's get into this week's topic. That's right. So there was a specific news story. It's actually the first time in a little while I felt like a news story kind of lined up with a topic, like yeah. brought a topic to mind for us. So um, it's kind of nice. Uh, so there was in the news uh, an interesting story about a series of papers that had been published all about a group that had finally sequenced the entire human genome. And I remember one of my first reactions when I read this story was like, hmm. I thought they'd already done that because yeah. <laughs> I was pretty familiar with like the human genome project. It's a big undertaking in the early 2000s. It's considered one of like the greatest like um, scientific collaborations of all time. Thousands of scientists from all over the world over decades. It was completed in 2003. I think it started in the 90s. And so I was, I thought at that time they had sequenced the entire human genome, but they had gotten really close, right? So they had done about 92% of the human genome at that time. And the gaps were in these sequences, and we'll get into kind of like how our DNA is structured throughout this yeah, uh, we're, topic. We're going to introduce yeah. the Human mm -hmm. Genome Project and the story that led us to this topic, and then we'll talk about like what genomics is and like some information on genetics and explaining a lot of the terms yeah. that we're going to use because it's very term heavy, and then kind of how like or and epigenetics and how genetics affects mm -hmm. our lives. Yeah, so like genomics, if you're not as familiar with it, is the study of genomes, which is a, an organism's entire sequence and the study of like in between different types of organisms, the changes between genomes, the whole sequence. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about the history of that kind of science, but we'll kind of go all the way back to genetics, the building blocks of genetics and how all of um, you know our genetic information codes for what becomes of an organism and we'll build up to genomes and genetic expression and talk a little bit about some genetic engineering and things like that some things more you know the big cutting edge stuff in our modern day so the human genome project initially did 92 percent about of the whole human genome and then just recently in april of 2022 they published that they had finished the remaining eight percent 
Um, but this 8% contained highly repetitive sections that were beyond the ability of technology of the time, like in 2003, to be read and sequenced. Mm -hmm. This technology has come like leaps and bounds. Like it's crazy to think like um, in the 70s, it basically like didn't exist essentially. Yeah. Like you could barely do like the simplest of organisms. We were only just getting started at how to understand like genomes and read them and things like that and read genetics. And then, you know, in the nineties, you start to get to the point where you're starting doing certain types of um, blotting experiments, like with electrophoresis. So like uh, these are very famously from the OJ Simpson trial, right? Where it's one of the earliest times that genetic material was ever used in a court of law. Mm. And it's very interesting. There's some really interesting stuff about how, that um the how the defense handled that information at the time and set like kind of a precedent for genetic information in the courtroom uh but then to now and then in 2003 yeah where you could you could do 92 percent of the genome and it was this huge undertaking it took thousands of scientists yeah. right the, the the computing power was so you know it took so much computing power and so many gigabytes of information to even store this and do it um then to now where like Slightly differently, but like, you know, now people are like swabbing themselves and yeah. mailing off their genome to be sequenced by some... 23 and me. I know. I have feelings about that, but we can maybe save those for the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so it's just really, really interesting how far this technology has come and like how much better we are at doing it. So, you know, we'll talk a little bit like why these repetitive sequences are harder to, uh, to sequence and things like that as we go through. So a little bit about the like very specific technologies should, should we do that now yeah 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 so a little bit about like the very specific technologies that were different in this this new series of papers so they were published by a group called the telomere to telomere consortium the t2t consortium so telomeres just very briefly are they're long repeating sequences uh of you know bases at the end of your gene sequences so um if you're familiar you know we have the actg uh base pairs those are your genome essentially they like code for the information along it and at the end of your chromosomes really there's these long stretches of you know the same repeating sequence over and over and over again they're called telomeres yeah. yeah you hear about them a lot with aging exactly and we will also we'll explain more about like what the base pairs are and as yeah. we go through we're just going to give you a we're just talking about the Human Genome Project right now, and then we'll get into all of our details. Yeah. So they, why they say telomere to telomere is the idea of the from one end, the very, very, very end of one sequence to the very, very end of the other, um, where it's just all these repeating like A's and T's and things like that. Uh, so they used, they basically what they did was they combined a number of existing techniques because the idea is that you have to read the DNA and, and sort of have a system that tells you like, you know actg the pattern that's happening but you have to do the same sequences multiple times because you know you might have say a one percent error rate or a 0.1 percent error rate but you're dealing with a genome that's three billion base pairs long so there's you know a 0.1 percent error rate is a lot of errors yeah. if you do a single read so you have to read in frames and you have to take you have to have multiple 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 you know copies of each location so that you can compare them to you know your reference genome and all these other things and make sure that oh this is the time that it made a mistake but this is look at how you know 20 times in a row it's the same and the 21st mm -hmm. time it's different that's a mistake so we know that it's this sequence okay so that's part of the reason why these things take so much um computer data too you need a lot of redundancy to make sure it's you're doing it right exactly like if you had only the sequence of letters on like a text file uh, the human gene, which is about 3.2 billion uh, base pairs, so the individual A's, T's, C's, and G's, 
it would take about 700 megabytes, which is a lot. If you think about like your biggest word file, right? Like a word file has one, it has all this extra coding on it anyway, around formatting and stuff like that. So it's a little bit bigger, but it's, you know, usually in the kilobyte range, right? 700 megabytes is like several albums worth of music and stuff like oh. that. Right. So, the, and that would be just text, but to do a gene sequencing, it's going to be hundreds of gigabytes because it's the same sequence over and over. And then the code that allows you to like line all these different chunks up to confirm if you've got the right sequence or not. So they used uh, a technique called Oxford Nanopores Greater 100 Kilobase Pair Ultralong Reads. So, Such a long <laughs> Yeah. A long so I think they just call it like the Oxford Nanopore technique or whatever. But basically these are very long stretches, 100 kilobase pairs, so 100,000 kilobase pairs. And... It has a higher error rate, but it's good at create. So it's hard to create these perfectly identical um, arrays, they call them, but you can create like a complete assembly of a chromosome. Mm. So it's a really good way to take like this big snapshot of like, this is probably what it should be or close to it, but there's going to be lots of little errors. Then you combine it with a more traditional technique, which is the PacBio Hi-Fi circular consensus sequencing. So these take shorter 20 kilobase pair read lengths with a much lower error rate, right? And you're taking, because you're doing smaller reads, you're, you're gonna reduce the number of errors because not everything has to go perfect every time. And then what you do is you combine those two sequences and you, you compensate for each um, technique's weaknesses and you generate a file that has the entire genome read. Um, and so they did this using an old sequence that was done in the genome in the human genome project so it's called grch38 um and it's just like you know just gets this name designation it's what that original test was done on so it's a good reference genome okay yeah so this sounds like the oxford nanopore is like the the, the wider shot right so yeah. like if you were taking a picture of like a landscape if you took one big picture of it that's like your oxford nanopore and then if you went in and you took like like small or like more like zoomed in pictures of each kind of quadrant of the picture mm -hmm. that's the the pack bio hi-fi mm -hmm. so then you can overlay them and you like you might see more detail in the in the little ones but you might be missing like how they connect to each other and all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff it's almost like yeah like when you you know if you're doing like a really big mural or a very very large painting or you're photographing like you know a, an element in the night sky where the field of view is too large like yeah you might take one like large frame picture of it like where the whole thing's in frame or you might sketch out you know the rough idea of where things yeah. go and then you're going to paint in the specific details. And that is, it's almost like that. You create this long read and you probably do, still have probably several copies of that sequence. You figure out where you're seeing errors and then you use the shorter sequences to compare to those spots. And then you've got, you know, 40, 50 reads for each individual section potentially. And you can start to suss out, okay, this is an error here. This is a, the wrong base pair was incorporated or whatever and compare them until you build up the whole sequence yeah yeah cool it's kind of like you know building a puzzle right like you start with the picture on the box mm -hmm. but then you start dealing with the individual pieces and you see how they fit together until you build the whole thing out yeah, yeah. uh so the specific sample that they use does have some shortcomings um and this has been you know since the G genome project was completed and there's lots of other human genomes that have been sequenced uh but it lacks a y chromosome uh oh. it's because of the way the cell line is gen regenerated and now the Y chromosome is very short, the shortest chromosome. So it doesn't have a ton of information on it anyway, but it is important to code it. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's what makes males. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And it just, it, it's just one of those things where, yeah, it only takes a few genes at a key point in development to be turned on to divert a human's development from female to male. And so that's why the Y chromosome is so short. It's also why there's a lot of like certain conditions, like even like male pattern baldness, but especially color blindness specifically are way more frequent among men because they're on the X chromosome. When, and if women have two copies of the X chromosome, sometimes they're going to compensate for yeah. a bad copy, but Which men won't. We'll get into when we get into yeah. alleles and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the other shortcomings of this GR38 sample is that it's of European descent. So they have, there are other um, consortiums. So it's called the Human Pangenome Reference Consortium. So they're trying to build like a, uh, basically a database of reference, they call them haplotypes. So the whole human genome will have a sequence of like, you know, all of our genomes are fairly similar with like the small changes that result in our individual differences, but that's the genome is still like, this gene is still going to be here. And yeah. you know, this other gene is going to be on this chromosome and stuff, yeah. but the different, you know, so my genome versus Sarah's genome, those are haplotypes. Okay. Yeah. So they're trying to build a database of all these different haplotypes for different, you know, um, groups of people and things like that. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, so the, the, this paper, the series of papers is sort of like a bit of a demonstration project to show this is the, this is the series of techniques and the method that you could use to sequence any person's genome 100 to 100% completion. Then there's still like, you know, for this to become something super widely applicable where anyone could and could go and get their gene sequenced, there's a lot of work to be done on automation, right? Because right now it takes, you know, some extremely skilled individuals working extremely long hours in the lab, right? Like this is who knows how many years of work this is from a huge team of people to, you know, and it's like 10 or 15 papers that were all published at once. Yeah. So, you know, this isn't something that you can call up the lab and be like, hey, I need a genome next Tuesday. Yeah. Like, uh, what can you do for me kind of thing, right? We're way, a long way away from that. But there you go. So that's the the stuff that's in the news right now. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's helping us, gave us the inspiration for this. And Davis and I both studied genetics and stuff to an extent in our degree. So mm -hmm. this felt uh, familiar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice. All the stuff that came like flooding back to me as I was yeah. like doing research for this. Yeah. And yeah. like, oh, I remember things. It's so Exons nice. and introns yeah. and gene cassettes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of gene cassettes. Oh, I'll, I'll get to gene cassettes. Okay. Oh, right. yeah. Excited to talk about that one. Yeah, so yeah. we uh, we talked to, like David said, you have haplotypes. These are for, like, different groups of people, but you're, like, the human genetic material is our, our genome, the human genome, right? Yeah. Uh, and genomes, David, do you want to talk to us about genome file sizes? Well, so we kind of did that, right? Yes. That, that was saying about 700 megabytes if it was the straight chain of letters, but a file produced from this sequencing procedure, something akin to what the T2T did, right. uh, is going to be in the realm of like 200 gigabytes for an individual organism. And it's going to change depending on the organism too, right? Because some, you know, simple bacteria and things like that, their, their genomes are much shorter. Yes. It's not going to take that much data. It's not going to take that much time either. Then great, then we've covered the human genome mm -hmm. project and it's time to get back to basics. Back to basics. I like it. It might become a segment name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll just slowly create them as I need to give everything a snappy mm -hmm. name. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about genomics. So genomics is the study of genomes. And a genome is, as we've said a couple of times now, it's the complete set of genetic instructions that's found in a cell. Now, there's some, you know, not wishy-washy definition stuff here, but there's like 
I think most people are very familiar with like within your cell you have mitochondria, right? It's like me, the powerhouse of the cell, exactly, right? <laughs> it's like the one fact from high school biology that everyone remembers. Davis knew he could be like Sarah. It's a meme. I yeah. feel like I know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the interesting thing, right, is that there's there's a bunch of genetic or there's a bunch of um, like evolutionary history of where the mitochondria came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, it, it's that we we think it may have been a separate organism that at a certain point was like absorbed by the early cells and became yeah. like a single functioning organism. Yeah. Uh, and kept working within that because now it was protected from outside predation. Exactly. And one of the reasons that we know it happened this way is because the mitochondria actually has its own genome. Yeah. It has its own set of genes and it's a circular genome, right? So you're used to humans. We have the chromosomes. Sometimes you see those little X's and stuff like that on karyotypes, which is a, you know, the picture of someone's genome, like uh, chromosomes that have all been arranged and stuff. Yeah. But they're all just like, they're they're more like strands. Yeah. Right. And when they're, when you see them in that X form, they're all bundled up. They're like tightly wound together. Yeah. Uh, But in a bacteria, it's a, just a circle generally. Um, it's just a long chain of DNA because it's, again, it's not as complex, so it doesn't have to have the same types of structure. Is that called a plasmid? A plasmid is a tool that's used in genetic engineering, which is a circular piece of DNA that's easy to open and insert and then move across. So certain bacteria actually create plasmids as a normal function of their biology because that's how they like reproduce and do some level of genetic recombination. And some can even pass those plasmids across to each other. And that's part of what causes so much, uh, that's what causes so much like antibiotic resistance and stuff when you have a, Mm -hmm. like a bacteria that develops this and then they can package it and send it to a friend basically. Yeah, absolutely. So interestingly, they found that the mitochondria actually has a circular genome and they've noted that it doesn't code for too many genes anymore. It still has a few, but that actually some of they've, there's all this science that's been done to show that over evolutionary time, some of the parts of the genome from the mitochondria has actually just been incorporated into the human and other animals genomes. It's really fascinating. It's a little bit deep divey it's kind of hard to get into um it's it's very like the mechanisms of it involves plasmids and things like that but basically it's just to say that there is an entire another genome within every human cell right because you also have your mitochondrial genome and interestingly in human beings the mitochondrial genome is only passed down from the maternal um source yeah so you you your mitochondrial DNA is the same as your mother's, which is the same as her mother's, so on and so forth, all the way back to a universal common ancestor. It's very yeah. cool. It is. It's super fascinating. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, One of those times where the egg is a lot bigger than the sperm, so the egg contains like a lot more information yeah. and material. Same sort of thing, right? The Y chromosome is, serves almost more as a switch than a you know repository of information yeah. about being <laughs> like male, genetically male. And it's very similar where the sperm serves... It, it, it does contain the half of the genome that you're going to get from your dad, but it is really, it serves as a switch to activate the process the egg is going to undergo. Um, it's very fascinating. There's a lot of very interesting stuff in like the, how these mechanisms developed over billions of years. is just like, I mean, there's no one could sit here and tell you that they could explain how all of that happened because no one knows exactly how all those things happened. And a lot of them are just accidents. Like, they're the only way to explain them. This is like, well, one day one thing ran into another thing and it worked. And then it kept working for billions of years. Yeah. Maybe we'll do one of these on reproduction at some point. Yeah, that could be really interesting, right? If you're um, curious, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> it is spring. Um, <laughs> but, sorry, this is just to say that when we sometimes say, you know, a person's genome, the entire set of genetic instructions found in their cell. It's a bit of, there's an argument that it's a bit of a misnomer because your human cell has two genomes. A plant cell, a chloroplast, has very similar evolutionary history to the uh, to the mitochondria. 
in how it was incorporated into the plant cell. Mm. And the chloroplast also has its own genome. So yeah. plants really have three sets of genomes in every one of their cells because they have the chloroplast, the mitochondria, and then the plant genome. And some plants are even triploid on top of that. Yeah, it, very true. So they have three coxes of every chromosome. Yeah. yeah, right. So it's just so, it's just, again, it goes to show you that, like, they're in the, the you know, there's some common ancestor where all of this genetic machinery kind of started working together, but then there's still lots of variation in just like how the, the machinery, the literal cellular machinery is utilized across the animal and bacterial kingdoms uh, and, you know, makes all of the diversity of life that we see. Just like how scientists had to work together to map the genome, different beings had to come together and work together to make humans and yeah. plants. Yeah. And uh, most life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so a little bit, uh, some other things about a genome, right? So your genome is your principal method of inheriting traits, how you inherited your traits uh, from those that gave you your genetic information. And if you have offspring, how you will contribute to their genome. Um, and it, this is a term that really came about, it, this was kind of one of these really interesting things I found when I was mm -hmm. researching. So the term genome was originally coined in the 1920s, and it was used to describe the haploid chromosome set. So this is the singular copy of the chromosomes that, you know, that make up the human genome, right? So like what you'd find in an egg. Exactly, or a sperm, right? The half of the genome. That's sometimes how I remember it. Yeah. Half haploid yeah. versus diploid, which is two. That's pretty easy. Um, but it at this time in the 1920s, we still didn't know if genetic information was coded specifically in the DNA or the proteins that we were, the protein part of the chromosome. So the, the proteins that were wrapping up the chromosomes and that seemed to be being produced kind of by the chromosome and stuff like that. We didn't know what actually st was storing the genetic information. We knew all these things were there, but we couldn't see at that small of a level yet. Uh, and the genome didn't really catch on right away. So, but it wasn't really until like the 1960s that it starts to really take off. But there were some graphs that I saw and it was really right around the time the Human Genome Project launched, but it was really around the time like the internet took hold mm. that the gene, that the use of genome, it just sort of like, 19, you know, 1920s is invented. No one uses it. 1960s got this little plateau bump. And then like 1990s, it's just like, boom. And like mm. now, you know, it's, it's yeah. hugely, yeah. And it was one of those like, are you aware of what this word means kind of surveys sort of things? Yeah. I wonder if or it like has to do. Word usages. If it has to do at all with sci-fi. Yes. Sci-fi does have a tendency, like it'll draw bits and pieces from science. And then that's how these words and this, I, these ideas get into popular culture and popular vernacular. Something that like a lot of people think artists don't have any um, responsibility to be like scientifically accurate. But then I come at it like, no, no, but most people will never interact with this idea except through this popular media. Mm. So I think there is like, there's a lot more responsibility that artists could take in in being like science communicators mm. but that's not where they are and that's not what they study so it's it's a, it's a big conversation but it's a, a lot of ideas get will will get kind of either co-opted by like art and science fiction and all of these things and then their meaning kind of changes away from the from the actual scientific term uh or every once in a while what's really cool is the the art of the sci-fi will create a thing and then science goes i can make that which, mm -hmm. yeah right, like absolutely with a lot of stuff from star trek yeah i was even yeah. thinking right like a classic example of how like use of language in so in like science fiction media influences use of language in like real science is the character of data in uh star trek right Cause it's, all, it's all star trek it is well it is like and star trek it's especially science fiction in the way that it especially the 60s star trek mm -hmm. affected you know real science and the things that it kind of like 
predicted and so to speak or like inspired people to create like it's one of the first times that anyone had you know really depicted something like the communicator before that eventually became the cell phone at a time when no one could have predicted that there would be a future where we would all walk around with a supercomputer in our pocket right the equivalent of what it would have been a supercomputer back then right the idea of i forget the replicator yeah and Mm -hmm. we have now 3d printers printers and stuff like that we can't do food yet but yeah so data is really interesting because like uh, there's a debate about the pronunciation of data. Is it data or data? Data, data. And, uh, and I can't remember what the one, I'm not a huge Star Trek fan, so I don't remember what the one, the pronunciation from the show is, but one, it has to do with, um, you know, uh, John Stewart, not what's his name? Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Sorry. Slept <laughs> on that for a minute. Yeah, John Stewart. <laughs> Different guy. Uh, Patrick Stewart's like British accent, but also Star Trek always had a rule, especially for alien planets and species names that whoever had a written line where it was said first whatever pronunciation they used was the official pronunciation from oh, the show there forward. Cool. Um, so that's how they handled like words that had never like nonsense words, essentially that had been made up. Uh, but that also applied for data. So when he said data or whatever, or he says his name and it then became, that became the character's name and the pronunciation of it. And it's over time changed it because it used to have a specific pronunciation and oh. now it's just both are acceptable. And Very it's, cool. and it's also really frustrated. It's changed how, data is a plural word so it's uh it's proper grammatical usage sounds a little awkward yeah. um like the data are this oh yeah yeah in in like scientific writing um but it's really funny because like people have a really hard time with that one because it sounds grammatically incorrect but also because like then you have this character this famous character that was named data yeah. so it gets spoken about in the singular yeah, very so cool. just very interesting. It's just like a good example of what you're kind of trying to describe, I think. I know we did a whole episode on language, but it's going to happen in every episode. You know this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so um, basically we, we've, you know, over the years they figured out genomes, started sequencing the human genome in 2003, finished the human genome. It's this huge, uh, it's, I, it's, it really, it, it's hard to understate how big a deal it was at the time. Like yeah. it was like in every textbook and it's this, it's still looked to as like, one of the biggest collaborations in science. And it's just a piece of foundational work that underpins so much of the advances in genetics that we have today. Oh yeah. Right? Like you, it's like making us a, a dictionary or a map. Exactly. Yeah. And and again, the the thinking that had to go through, like we just talked about the combination of sequences of techniques that it took to finish this last like eight percent and another, you know, almost two decades of science development to get to a place where that was possible. But you think about they're still working on this platform of, well, the genome had been sequenced once already. 92% of it was done. And we can really focus in on this last 8% um, and being able to do the whole thing and like what we're missing. And you couldn't, and so you think about the people that started the Human Genome Project, they didn't have that to start with. They, they had to start with very, very little. And now we have, you know, genetic databases where like you could even uh, used to be able to go on these in like undergrad and like you could like type in an organism scientific name oh. and you could see if anyone had sequenced its genome or part of its genome. Cool. Yeah. And like pull genetic sequences. And so there's like um, one of them, for example, is like GenBank database. And as of 2015, it had over 2,500 eukaryotic genomes. So those are organisms like human beings, eukaryotic cells, um, you know, mitosis and sexual re- replication often stuff like that. Um, yeah, a eukaryote cell uh, has the genetic material contained in a membrane-bound nucleus. Thank you. So as opposed to genetic material floating around like it does in like bacteria and stuff, yeah. this is like trapped in a yeah. little house and inside then, the cell. And then between the archaeal and bacterial genomes, it's like almost 8,000. So you 
like you've got, and these are just like fully sequenced genomes, right? There's tons of other organisms where we've done proteins, certain little parts of the genome and things like that. But let's talk a little bit about the human genome specifically. Humans. We talked a lot about, uh, it's a diploid genome and how many chromosomes and stuff. Is it diploid? I think I always said diploid. I always said diploid. It I don't know. die for two, but. I, I have heard diploid as well. Yeah. I think it's just one of those. Again, we're coming back <laughs> to the fact that I just say some words weird, apparently. I, I just shrugged. None of you can see that. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah, so the human genome, you said it has uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes. So a pair of chromosome, right? So this means there's 46 in total. Uh, and 22 are autosomes, which means that they're the same in both male and female. This is, these are like, you need this to survive as human. And then uh, the 23rd pair, this is the sex chromosomes. So in biologically female people, this is XX. So two copies of the X chromosome. And then in uh, biologically male people, you have one X and one Y. I, I, I said 3.2 billion was off <gasps> by a factor of, a bi of, uh, of 100 million. Uh, <laughs> it's 3.1, roughly 3.1 billion base pairs. But this is not the largest genome. Ah, it's uh, a good. That's a good uh, fun fact to look up you. there. Very yes, I've, I've put a bunch of fun facts in here. Excellent. Because I tried because to think my ahead. facts are not fun. I also is tried. What to... <laughs> Sarah's trying to tell me. No, <laughs> I just tried to think of questions that I might ask during this and try to preemptively answer them instead of having to answer them all next time. Exactly, uh, it's good. So this the largest genome is not humans. It's actually a rare Japanese flower called Paris japonica, which has a whopping. 139 billion base pairs. That's wild. Plant, plants are wild, man. Mm -hmm. they, some of their genomes are gigantic, and you're like, why? <laughs> but yeah. plants are super cool. Different, different level of stability in the mm -hmm. genome, right? So there's a very big range in size of genomes across species, but uh, within humans, only about 0.1% of the genome will be different among individuals. Uh, which makes for roughly 3 million variants or mutations. And then there's always this idea of like, have you ever heard that, like, we share 50% of our DNA with a banana? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And lots of different comparisons like that. Oh, we're closer to this animal than this animal. Yeah. Exactly. So what it is, actually, is we don't share 50% of our DNA with bananas. We share 50 to 60% of our genes, which results to only about 1% of DNA. So your genome, your whole thing, only about 2% of our genes are actually DNA. Yeah. The rest of it is just like your genome. Only 2% of our DNA is our genes, right? Because the DNA is the whole sequence. Our genome is our DNA. If you could take the every chromosome, line them up, it's, it's every every little base pair in the sequence. Your genes, right, are the sections that code for your, like your proteins and stuff. So only 1% to 2% of your DNA is your genes. Okay. Just trying to think, yes. like, that seems to be like the correct way to... Yes. Yeah. Because there's yes. lots... Basically what we're trying to say is there's lots of other stuff in your DNA that does... It serves a purpose... But it's not the specific, like when you think about what gives you brown hair, yeah. your gene, it's not that part. Like that's such a small part of our overall DNA. There's so much other stuff that's needed for expression and and even just like structural integrity of the DNA. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so only about 1% of the, like the genes that code for the human stuff, uh, only about 1% of that is shared with bananas. But 50 to 60% of the whole structure of our DNA mm. is shared with bananas. Um, and, but then with chimps, it's about 96% of DNA is shared. So they're like, you know, much more similar to us than a banana. And I found a good definition for this, um, from how stuff works. And it's, it's important to understand the difference between DNA and protein products. Uh, an easy way to do this is think of DNA as the blueprint of a house and the protein products as the actual house because all of the information is in there. 
Then think of human DNA as a blueprint of a ranch home. So like a, just a certain type of home. Uh, it's like a one story. <laughs> a particular type of architecture. Yeah, one yeah. story, kind of sprawling. Yeah. Uh, and then think of banana DNA as a colonial style home. So in each house, a bunch of things are similar, like plumbing, bathrooms, kitchen, but the end products are both quite different. So that's how it works with humans versus just about everything else from bananas to chimpanzees. So wait, so is it the same way? Like, so it maybe it is then, right? Like they say, share 50 to 60% of our genes, 1% of the DNA is the same because it's the expression that is different, right? Well, it's like, it's all the structural stuff and all the, mm -hmm. like, there's just certain things you need for life. Yes. To exist. Yeah, yeah. And so all the stuff that required is just required for life to exist. Are going to be common among many different animal and plant species. Yeah. All mm -hmm. the way back to those like common ancestors, exactly. right? Like we have yeah. a common ancestor somewhere and it's like, that was life. Yeah. There's a reason like, like, you know, the machinery, why we, you know, to do cellular respiration is very yeah. similar among all species. Exactly. Because everybody has to break sugars down into energy. There's only like a handful of species that don't use the same type of cellular respiration. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so we're not 50% banana. Just yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's And it's true. And this is what will be really interesting when we talk about like, why is it that the it's so much of the other part of DNA, not the specific genes that make things happen, yeah. that is important to like what makes a human different from, you know, the organisms that we're closely related to. Yeah, right? it, yeah. It, it, it almost seems like a bunch of like empty space in the genome, right? right? But it's not. It has yeah. function. It just doesn't have like... Oh, I, it has like functional function as opposed to like the specific, like, oh, this says you have blue eyes. Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's, Let's get, get into, into why that works. All right. Okay. So, so yeah. DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid. It's one of the first words I learned how to spell because I like to show off. Deoxyribonucleic acid is also fun to say because it makes you sound really smart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's what I meant. Like, you know, in your elementary school, kids like, I know what DNA stands for. Deoxyribonucleic acid. Yeah. I was one of those kids. Uh, and so DNA is uh, a double helix, right? So it's like two strands that spiral around each other. Yeah. And they are built uh, out of nucleotides. So nucleotides are these like units that are it. it DNA has a sugar backbone, a sugar and phosphate backbone. And then it has nucleic acids attached to every sugar uh and this is this is like where the specifics come so because the sugar and phosphate groups are like the same pretty you much. think about it like the spine it's exactly. the back it's of the, the helix right yeah. yeah and then the nucleic acid so this is the actg davis mentioned before this is adenine is the a cytosine is the c thymine is the t and guanine is the g and these are again you'll get one of these so like one adenine will be attached to a sugar, and that sugar also has a little phosphate group attached to it. So that is a nucleotide. And then you stack a lot of them. <laughs> you stack a whole bunch of them, and you make one long strand, and then you have a second one of these long strands, and then they spiral around each other, and that's your DNA. Yeah, and the two strands are what we call complementary. So uh, right. there's hydrogen bonding between the two strands. When we were talking a bit about in the uh, the alcohol podcast, I talked a little bit about intermolecular forces. Oh. I'm going to get it right this time. Um, and that's forces between two different molecules, a really common one of which is hydrogen bonding. So hydrogen molecules are sometimes want to be shared, or hydrogen atoms sometimes want to be shared between areas of um, you know complementary electronics. So they're attracted by negative charges and things like that. And... Uh, and held together. So each nucleic acid has a complementary pair. So adenine and thymine are a pair, and cytosine and guanine are a pair. And adenine. I think you said adenine. I, you're right, I did say <laughs> adenine, which yeah. is a amino acid. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so A and T go together, and, and C, C and G, G go together. Almost and, like, like, 
uh, magnets of opposite polarity or like a key and a lock yeah exactly i think it's i think the way it works is and i don't remember which one has two and which one has three but one of them has two like i think it's adenine and thymine have two sites for hydrogen bonding and then cytosine and guanine have three it might be the other way around but yeah so they're more likely to bond the other and then the geometries match better Yeah, yeah and this interaction over the entire length of the chain keeps it tightly bound together as a double helix uh, but so one side of your DNA chain is the complementary side. It's the, it's just the opposite nucleic acids that are needed to create that bonding. And the reason this has happened is because it's way, way, way more stable than if you just had those nucleic acids like floating around exposed. Yeah, it's like it protects it. Exactly. It's one of the things that genet- um, evolutionarily led to that allowed more complex species to exist because really early on it would have been Uh, all genetic information would have been in something called RNA, which is similar to DNA, but a single strand. Uh, So we'll talk about that a little bit here. So this is part of, we want to go into a little bit about um, genetic machinery and essentially like common one uh, we talk about is uh, DNA replication. So you might remember if you took like high school biology, learned about mitosis, right? And how the cell copies itself and then splits into, you know, two sister cells that are identical. And that's how, you know, one of the reasons why we like we stay alive essentially yeah. right <laughs> um, you, like or, when you hear like oh you every seven years it's like you basically have new skin because you slough up all your old skin so yeah mitosis is the process making new cells so that you don't just end up without skin yeah or like when you Gross. get an injury right like if you get a cut and the skin is torn and then the scab starts healing into skin cells the process of over time like there's a there's a reaction process from your body to to the injury right yeah. that's why you yeah. scab over the platelets in your blood but then those platelets are consumed by like your skin cells as they're turned into skin cells mm-hmm. and through division right that's why some people heal a little bit faster than others and don't have scars as easily and stuff like that right because their mm-hmm. cells are just better at repairing and as you get older Older, it's harder to do that so that's really dna replication and there's some machinery that goes in and it kind of briefly splits up the dna it kind of makes an opening and it reads it the way that i always heard of it described was it's unzipping the dna yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's like you kind of unzip and the machinery reads it and then the dna can rezip itself yeah and it creates a new line and it kind of reads both sides of it and it creates a new complementary strand for each side that it's unzipped and that becomes two new strands of dna that does that for your whole genome, all of your chromosomes, and then that cell gets a bunch of signals from those genes and it splits at the end of this process. We're not as we're not as interested in talking too deeply about replication today. Yeah. Um, replication, like all the processes we're gonna talk about, there's sometimes the risk of error uh, and it can introduce mutations into the genome. And this is sometimes one of the things that can lead to certain types of cancers and things like that is same thing with like the gene sequencing um, techniques, you're going to enter, there's always some errors. So the machinery that does this work, and we'll go more into like what that machinery is doing and why it makes errors when talking about RNA and stuff, but uh, it's going to make some mistakes. Our, our cells are actually really, really good at seeing these mistakes and fixing them. But again, this is happening billions and billions and billions of billions of times throughout your lifespan. Over time, these errors start piling up and they can lead to what we call deleterious mutations that are harmful to your health. And if they result in cells being able, not being able to control themselves and start replicating out of control and not serving their actual, not creating the machinery to serve their actual purpose, that's what causes certain types of tumors. Yeah. Yeah. Because tumor is just a growth. Exactly. Um, so what we really want to talk more about is is protein synthesis. So this is like, DNA replication is kind of what happens at like 
almost to speak the end of a cell's life or a certain point in its life cycle where it wants to split and create another copy of itself. And that happens within the nucleus, right? Yes. Yeah. And there's a but well, and there's a part there's a part within the mitosis process where the nucleus dissolves. But right. that replication happens first, the nucleus dissolves, they all organize into the cell, right? And then yeah. they get split into the two sisters, right? right? You remember seeing those like diagrams yeah, and I'm, like I'm, yeah. I'm a man, <laughs> exactly. Like, and it looks like kind of and, puppets and like yeah. spindles are coming. They, they actually use the word spindles. Yeah. And, yeah. Draw what is it, telomerase or whatever? Yeah. Draw, draw these different phases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what we want to talk about a little bit more though is protein synthesis. And this is how the cell uses your DNA to express proteins, which is the expression of our genes and what makes what in a human body, what will differentiate cells of the liver from the lung and the brain and things like that, like different organs and among different organisms, what will um, code for differences between individuals within a species or, you know, on a larger scale, what makes so species so different from each other. Yeah. So the first thing you got to do in this process is you have to get this information out of the nucleus yeah. and it does not leave as a double strand. It does like the DNA does not leave, but RNA, the single strand, the, so DNA deoxyribonucleic acid, RNA is just ribonucleic acid. It doesn't have the deoxy. So RNA is a single strand. So the machine will be whatever. I forget which enzyme it is that reads it. Um, for RNA to turn DNA into RNA? Yeah. It's RNA polymerase. Okay, so RNA yeah. polymerase in the nucleus will kind of unzips the DNA, it reads a section, and it creates a strand of RNA, single-stranded, and that single-stranded strand is allowed to leave the nucleus so it can get out into the rest of the cell. There uh, are a number of steps that happen to RNA. RNA go undergoes some pre-processing before mm -hmm. it's shipped out of the nucleus. And one of the other main differences between RNA and DNA is that in DNA, like we said, there's a T, there's thymine, but in RNA, they doesn't use thymine, it uses uracil. So wherever there would normally be a T, there is a U and it goes into the nucleus. Yeah. So there's a number of things that happen with your RNA. So this whole process, uh, this part is called transcription. So we'll talk about the words transcription and translation. And you can liken them to how you would use those words in terms of language. So transcription, for example, is when you take a text and you transcribe it. Unfortunately, you use the word in the definition. Well, it's like if you listen to something and then you write it out. So you're, the way I've always thought about it is transcription is the process where you're taking DNA into RNA. It's changing forms. And then translation is you're putting it into a whole new, you're taking your RNA and turning it into a protein. So it's being read to produce something else. Like it's yeah. using the instructions. Yeah. Like, so DNA to RNA, the transcription is more of language copy. to language. Yeah. yeah. And then RNA to protein is the translation. It's like making a new thing. Yeah, exactly. You, you're now, you're going from the language of nucleic acids to the language of amino acids and proteins. Right. That's how I always liked it. It's one of those weird like tricks that make sense in my brain yeah. to memorize these things for tests, but not everybody. <laughs> Sometimes I explain them to people and people are like, you're crazy. <laughs> well, I think it works in this context because trans transcription is a smaller change than translation. Yes. And right? I think that that's what I was trying to convey. Yeah. 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 I got mm -hmm. it. I got it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for supporting my, <laughs> my analogy. But yeah, so transcription is what happens when the DNA is read by RNA polymerases and this RNA chain is made. And there's a lot of things that go into allowing it to read. And we'll, we'll talk about those a bit more in gene expression, but we think about the gene is the specific chunk of information where the protein is coming from. 
and w that will do work in the cell. So their proteins do all sorts of stuff in the cell. They are everything. When you think about nanomachines, that's what a protein is. Um, and sometimes the way that I find helps to visualize why this works, because it's hard to think about like, you know, machines in the cell. That's like a weird concept. The way I try to always think about it is essentially you have all this stuff floating in solution. So you have this long wiggly chain and it's floating. But like we talked about in the, some chemistry stuff is that every molecule has some electronics to it, right? Like with the hydrogen bonding, there's an area where it's like a magnet and certain types of electronegativity are going to attract other areas where it's more electropositive and they're going to hold tightly together. And this is happening. There's all sorts of different forces when you get down to that scale. So especially when you get RNA, you've got this long chain and all the, nucle the nucleic acids are exposed and they have their electronics exposed to this fluid that they're sitting in. Then there's all these proteins that are these long chains of amino acids. Again, and so it's just a huge, massive molecule folded in on itself and it has areas that want to bind that have certain types of electronics or shape yeah. and wants to bind with stuff. I think that's a very important distinction to make is that your RNA will just kind of be a strand, mm -hmm. but your protein is a long strand that's being folded. Yeah. So sometimes you see like models of this and it, it'll look like a solid chunk of thing because it's being folded in on itself and it's become like a little like glob mm -hmm. basically as opposed to a strand. Yeah, because parts of this strand are going to be like oil. They don't want to be around the water type solution that's in all of your cells, right? So why we need to drink water to survive. Um, but other parts are going to like that. And based on how they're arranged, they're going to fold into certain types of shapes and then they're going to collapse down into this functional form, this yeah. final folded protein. And like some, a piece of paper versus an origami. Exactly. And some of these some of these proteins have areas that are specifically look as looking is like air quotations, but they're bumping around. They're just floating around, bumping into each other. Yeah. But every so often you're going to bump into, you know, so you're an RNA polymerase. You're kind of floating around in the nucleus looking for stuff to do, and you're just going to hit this chain. And there's going to be all these, you know, special structures around this area, you know, all these other proteins are going to glom on and it's going to attract you to that site. So as you're bumping around, you might bump into something and bounce off because it doesn't have everything you want. You might accidentally hit a strand of DNA, but it's not what you're looking for. Keep bouncing around, bouncing around, bouncing around. Eventually, you're going to find your dance partner. You're going to bump into it and you're going to be stuck. Yep. And it's going to just, you know, trigger all your little machinery stuff. You're, you know, you're going to bind onto it. And then that electronic change is going to result in all these other changes to the protein sequence. And then all of a sudden you're going to start doing your work. And you're going to go base pair by base pair along the chain of RNA and with RNA with, so with RNA polymerase, if you're running into an unfolded DNA and you're creating more RNA, you're going to read it base pair by base pair, just like you would in DNA replication. You're going to add the complementary base pair onto your growing RNA chain. And then eventually you're going to kind of terminate and you're going to kind of cut that piece out and it's just going to float away and the DNA is going to seal itself back up and then it's going to go and do its stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so on an RNA, it'll have, it will have, sometimes you'll transcribe a piece of RNA that has multiple genes mm -hmm. because sometimes what happens is it's multiple proteins that need to work together. So it makes sense to express them all at the same time. Yeah. There's no point in like just having RNA for one of them because then you're just going to have a whole bunch of like, say you need... It's like if you're trying to make like an Ikea furniture and you need parts A, B, and C, mm -hmm. it's like you want all parts of them at the same time because otherwise you're just going to have a bunch of like shelves and you're not going to have anything to like hold up the shelves. Yeah, no frame like, for the yeah. shelves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a good example of this is uh, like the heme group 
the heme protein that's in your red blood cells. The heme protein is made up of four proteins that come together oh. to create this like kind of this superstructure. So some genes are like that. So it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to make just be making tons of copies of, you know, group one yeah. and no copies of group three, right? It's sort of like a, an assembly line. Now you have a bottleneck because you're not creating it. Yeah. Now creating these bottlenecks for certain types of gene expression can be very useful. It, it gets very complicated. Yeah. But in general, with nature and with evolution, there's an efficiency thing. Mm -hmm. Whatever's most efficient tends to be what gets selected for. Mm -hmm. So within an RNA, so we're starting to move a little bit into um, one, how you make a protein, but also like a little bit the gene expression. Within an RNA, there's spots that are called introns and exons. And exons are the coding sequences. So they may contain genes or the things that are needed to form a gene, like to like read that whole sequence and create a protein. Um, and introns are parts that are spliced out. Now, not all, some animals have less of these than others. Um, like the more simple organisms don't really have this distinction between them. Like a bacteria doesn't really have introns and exons. It's not doing this in the same way, but really complex species have developed this system. And there's a lot of, um, different research on why they're, why they exist. Some people, there's some research to suggest that they convey a level of integrity to the DNA sequence. They allow the DNA and the RNA to be more, um, to not break down as quickly, uh, be less likely to make errors. Sometimes they give, there's differential splicing. So you can have, um, different types of proteins in the same cell that have different, different expressions based on which parts are spliced out and put in. You can even create two completely different tissues from the same sequence oh. by splicing out different parts. I think there's an example with muscles, like smooth and like striated muscles and stuff like that can be differentiated by differential sequencing. Um, but it's the same sequence of like, this is how you make muscle protein, but we want to make this type of muscle protein. That's done. This work is done by like spliceosomes. So they kind of come along and they read the D, the RNA. I love that word. Spliceosome. I know. I know. Then <laughs> some of the genetic engineering stuff, the words are the protein names are really easy. Like polymerase, right? Like yeah. that's the one. Polymerases do either replication or transcription, right? Either DNA rep, DNA polymerase to replicate or RNA polymerase to create an RNA chain. So you know, like kind of self-explanatory almost yeah. polymerase spliceosome cut stuff like spliceosomes are used for splicing <laughs> yeah who would have thought um so they're made up of uh, in fact they actually believe that the earliest proteins like in you know in the primordial soup when life was only just beginning that the earliest proteins would have been rna entirely mm -hmm. rna because there's still some rna proteins that are functional in the process of dna replication and like transcription translation and protein synthesis um so it just depends on you know what uh what specific sequence your cells trying to create and different promoters that have been activated to attract these spliceosomes and it cuts it down to your kind of your final rna piece with all those extra bits removed and that will usually then leave the nucleus and become a protein Ooh. so this is done by a protein called a ribosome and the ribosome reads the rna sequence three base pairs at a time call it a codon each of those codons, each sequence of three uh, codes for a specific amino acid. Now, there's, what is it, 26 amino acids? Something like that. Yeah. And there's there's 50 or 60 different possible combinations of codons based on the A, T, C, G, and really U. Um, and so different, I think it's like, basically it's like four will code for each individual amino acids. So there's four different combinations. And part of the redundancy of this is, again, if you have certain types of mutations, there's a chance that your mutation may result in the same um, amino acid being read anyway. So then there's no change. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you want that redundancy so that you can you can't maintain the complexity without redundancy because there's always going to be errors just by the sheer amount of times this stuff is happening. Yeah. You have to think about, you know, these things are, they're molecules. They're really tiny. They're big by molecular standards because they're proteins, but like they're, they're, your body's made up of trillions of cells. This is happening billions of times in every one of those cells. So they're just, you know, they're bumping into each other. They're moving around. And so even though it's just a margin of error. Exactly. And even though, you know, we, we at the macro scale as human beings with cause and effect, we tend to really get bogged down in thinking about things as like, I go and I do this thing, I make this action, this outcome happens. So when we start to think about things like, um, like, you know, how or molecular synthesis works, like how are you mixing two things together to create new molecules or how are proteins interacting in the cell? We have a hard time thinking about like, well, how does this like massive molecules know to go over here and interact with this thing and do this specific task and then and then be done? And the short answer is, is that it doesn't. It absolutely does not. <laughs> it's that it's constructed in a way that it that it, this is what it's going to interact with, but it's just going to randomly bump into crap until that happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there could be, there's some like, there's different forces and stuff that might be able to hold proteins into certain areas or, and like increase the likelihood of it happening, but mm-hmm. it still all comes down to chance. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this is why like you need such a large genome. So when mistakes happen, right, if you had all of your genes backed up right up against each other and you get one base pair deleted, well, then all of a sudden the entire frame shifts and everything is off and everything is off. And now potentially you have the second, you know, protein two that is thinking it's part of protein one and you're creating some monstrous, monstrous thing that uses resources for the cell and doesn't actually do anything and can actually be really harmful. Um, So that's why we have these like long repeating sequences because oftentimes what happens is the mistakes happen when the sequence is finished being read. So to have, if you have these long runoffs of telomeres at the end of your chromosomes that are usually they're A's and T's, just one at AT, 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 AT forever and ever and ever, like thousands of copies of this, you know, because the machinery naturally is going to cut off a few hundred base pairs every time by having those telomeres, you're not cutting off anything that means anything. And because it's this alternating sequence, it's really tightly bound. So it allows your DNA to stay nice and tight and stable when it's sitting around in the cell. But as you get really old, you're running out of telomere. Now you start to see those errors occur in your genes, in the important parts of your genome. So uh, just to wrap up kind of the protein synthesis conversation. So the ribosome is reading the M- the mRNA three um, base pairs at a time in a codon. mRNA is messenger Thank RNA. Yeah. So this is the like this is the stuff that actually leaves the nucleus and ends up in the yeah. the cytoplasm of the cell, the like cell liquid. Uh, because it's messenger. It's yeah. it's got a message. And one of those protein <laughs> one of those RNA proteins that we we're talking about plays a role here. It's called tRNA, transfer RNA. Uh. It's a looped sequence, a small sequence of of RNA that's created by the cell uh, that will bind the amino acid and will bind in the ribosome to the codon that's being read. So this is how the ribosome brings in the amino acids to start creating what we at this stage call the polypeptide chain. So peptides are amino acids. They're the backbone of a protein and and poly meaning many. So it's a polypeptide chain. Lots of these little peptides start building up into a big long chain. Eventually it'll finish and then the protein will fold. There's a ton, a ton, ton of research into how proteins fold. It's not super well understood um, because there's a few intermediate structures that are common among proteins. Sometimes we call them like alpha helixes are one. Um, This is when it's going to coil up on itself. 
um, because the inner part of the coil doesn't want to be around water. Uh, there's beta sheets. You can kind of sometimes, sometimes I liken those to like a perm. Because you know how in a perm you're binding the strands of hair to each other with disulfide bonds? Sure. It, that's, that's what a perm is. Okay. Um, that's why you need like a chemical treatment and stuff. Oh. I always liken beta sheets to that because it's just in, inter, intramolecular forces between the peptides that like arranges them into a sheet. So it's more so between them, whereas with an alpha helix, it's in the interaction with the water, the the like the cytoplasm and the fluids, uh, and eventually it'll fold into a functioning protein, and then it will go to the specific site in the cell, outside of the cell, on the cell wall, uh, cell uh, membrane, where it's going to perform its given task. Yeah, very cool. It is. It's very very neat, uh, and so. This is something that's happening in almost every, well, in every organism, Yeah. right? This is why we always talk about like all organisms are DNA based. They all, we all share a lot of this machinery. But like we were saying with like, you know, bananas and humans and chimps and all these other species sharing so much DNA, it's because there are certain things that are really common among all the animal kingdom, every species everywhere. Uh, But a lot of sometimes what changes is how our genes are expressed. And that is what really differentiates, again, between organs, between individuals, and between species. Um, I mean, you can even look at, like, the difference between chimps or the great apes and humans is the amount of hair that we produce. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, it's, I, <laughs> this is a speculation, but we still have gene, like, we still have genes for hair and that, but we don't produce it, for most people, we don't produce a great volume all over our bodies mm-hmm. because we don't, like, at some point it became... Uh, evolutionarily not important to have anymore. And some of the and... early humans had, you know, that are that were driven to extinction and stuff like that, you know, the other hominids, they did have more like hair coverage and things like that, right? Yeah. So different gene expressions among similar species. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then with humans, at some point it became like less advantageous. Less advantageous or like a human was produced that didn't have as much hair and it didn't cause any negative effect to them. Yeah. And then that also meant that they're their whole system was able to spend the energy instead of making hair in different body parts, it could spend that energy on like brain development or whatever other features we have and like moving upright and all of these things. Right. So it, it can take that energy and use it for something else. And then the species like that organism did well and they made more, they produced more babies and then that's Mm -hmm. why we don't have the hair. Yeah. And that's what we mean when we talk about natural selection, right? Yeah. Is certain traits are sometimes, this is the interesting thing about mutations. Mutations are almost the majority of the time, meaningless. Yeah. The genome is set up in such a way, and it, we wouldn't have gotten this far if it wasn't this way, where if mistakes happen, that most of the time they're fixed or they don't create... That's why there's so much redundancy yeah. in the genome. That's why we have, you know, diploid organisms are very stable because you have two copies. So if you have one bad copy, you might have another good copy and you're going to avoid really bad diseases. It's why certain types of diseases that have dominant inheritance traits where one copy of the gene will code for the very often very serious illness, a lot of those are so serious that they either become very rare in um, populations or they become they completely disappear because if if it's dominant and it codes for something that basically is terminal will kill you it means that you're an unfit individual from an evolutionary standpoint so you're very you're not very likely to be able to to spread on your genome so whereas certain types of diseases that are recessive for a good example like cystic fibrosis become very hard to get rid of in a population especially with cystic fibrosis there's a case around um 
having one of the copies for cystic fibrosis doesn't give you the disease, but it prevents um, some of the worst effects of cholera. Right. So it started to become really common in the early pioneers that were living um, in like North America and Turtle Island because they would get sick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We talked about this in one of our early episodes. I don't remember which one though. Yeah. It's a very famous like case study in genetics and genetic diseases because cystic fibrosis is not as common in East Asian populations. Uh, It's very, very rare because it's a recessive disease. So you have to have both bad copies of this particular gene. And, uh, but because in a specific group if you had one copy you were less likely to die from cholera and there were periods of time in both england and in north america where people were dying from cholera like on mass so there was a selection pressure for individuals that had one copy then generations later you start to get this in this cropping up of people with with cystic fibrosis from those populations yeah because yeah. if you yeah. yeah if you're if you just have one copy so if we said you have two of each two copies of each or yeah two copies of each gene yeah and then so if you have one copy has like what's called the normal version and then the other gene could have the like the cystic fibrosis gene, right? Um, but the the normal, all this is in air quotes, but the normal version of the gene is basically going to overrule the cystic fibrosis like copy. Well, you're going to be, so you're going to make both copies potentially, but that having, you know, half as much of the functioning one is still good enough to be normal. Yeah. It's usually how it's like often what that means. Yeah. Yeah. But then if you are a carrier and Mm -hmm. you like get together with another carrier, so you each have one, then there's a one in four chance that your offspring is going to have two of the deleterious effect Mm -hmm. copy. Right. Because like when you like if you're a female, when you make an egg, you're like one of them is going to have the the healthy version and one is going to have the not healthy version. Mm -hmm. And then with. A male, when you make your your gametes, your sperm, then one will have the healthy and one will have the not healthy. So it all it takes is the random chance of like the sperm with the deleterious copy meets the egg with the deleterious copy, and then you end up with cystic fibrosis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've, the contrast to this is something like Huntington's disease, which has a dominant tr- um, inheritance pattern. I was actually going to bring up Huntington's because it's an interesting one because it's such a late life. Um, like emergence. Well, late being like in your thirties and yes. then very, very quickly. Yeah. But um, late enough that people can procreate. Oh uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I see what you're trying yeah. to say. Yes. So, absolutely. so late, mm-hmm. late in terms of evolutionary procreation. Yeah. So people can like, if you don't know that you have a history of this in your family, then you could procreate and you could pass it on to your children before even realizing that you have it yourself. Yeah. And that's, I think how like a disease like that has remained prevalent, even though it is so damaging yeah it's why people with huntington's they have like if you're the child the child of someone who has huntington's is later diagnosed with huntington's you have a 50 percent chance of having it because as long as the bad copy from your one parent is what's passed on to you you will get huntington's yeah unfortunately it's a very very serious illness so that's a little bit about like inheritance this is kind of the classic like you know mendelev's peas and human eye color human eye color is a good one um you know, different, um, you, if you did a lot of bio, you know, you see the Drosophila, the fruit flies and the different wing types and stuff. And if you did a lot of plant bio, you would have seen, uh, Arabidopsis, uh, which is the model organism in plant biology. Cause it, and model organisms are neat. They have typically a very short lifespan. Yep. So you can reproduce them very quickly because whenever you're looking at genetics and genetic changes, you need to look at them over a long span, right? Yeah. You have to look, you're looking at them over generations. So fruit flies, we know how fast they reproduce if you've ever had them in your kitchen. Uh, and then Arabidopsis have a six-week life cycle, and they'll they'll make a lot of seed and stuff. So they're a really good way to see 
okay, what is the effect seven generations down the line if I change this one thing? Mm -hmm. And that's why they're commonly used also like for genetic engineering as well as trait selection because mm -hmm. you can do a single transformation, right? You can insert a gene and then within, yeah, if you're doing a plant gene insertion within six weeks, you can test your fully mature plants to see if you've had uptake or what proteins are being produced and stuff like that. And fun fact about Arabidopsis, it was the <clears> first <throat> plant with its full genome sequenced. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Year 2000. Mm -hmm. And it's an Arabidopsis in particular is a very important model organism in, uh, in biology. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a classic one about like selection for traits that we always talk about is dogs. Dog breeds. Yeah. You know, you almost don't even need to say any more than that. Uh, you have a really good third sock. Uh, series of videos about it. I think it's just I, the one video. Just the one yeah. video. But uh, yeah, about, you know, the selection, uh, how certain dogs got their traits in the selection process and things like that. Yeah. And that so that's like artificial selection, right? Yes. Because like we selected the traits we wanted. And you can see this a lot in dog breeds, but even in the different dog groups. So if you look at like, like if you've ever watched a dog show, they'll have all the dogs in groups. So there's like the working group and then like the herding group and the toy group and all this. Mm -hmm. And like the dog selected for to be herders. So this is your collies, all these sorts of dogs. Then they, those sorts of dogs are like, they're very smart. They're very, um, like they need a lot of stimulation. They have a lot of energy. Like they're really high endurance. Um, and they're very highly trainable, right? So like those are those traits. But then the toy group, mostly small and sociable mm -hmm. and i know that that's a that can be contentious because people might not think small small dogs can be very aggressive but they're very sociable to their family yeah right for most of them they they like want to come raised in. for a different purpose right yeah. yeah yeah so if you want more on that you can watch the third sock video yeah. uh it's called artificially selected dogs yeah <laughs> so this is a lot about like this is so this is kind of after genes are expressed we see these different traits among individuals in a species and we can either either naturally selected for or uh, un, or uh, artificially. artificially selected for. Uh, but what is happening with gene expressions? And there's a we want to talk about gene expression because there's a topic we really wanted to cover called epigenetics, which is this big new field in genetics um, that's very, very interesting, very cutting edge. Um, but we have to talk about gene expression to kind of understand how epigenetics works. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about, you know, you have this sequence on your DNA that has the proteins of interest that do the work, right? Proteins are your cellular machinery. They're coded for in your DNA. That's really what we mean when we say a gene, the individual kind of genetic sequence, um, currency almost, whatever. Uh, currency is the wrong word for it. Um, but how does your, you know, how does your heart cell know to create a certain type of muscle versus, you know, your stomach lining or whatever? And the reason that this happens is, you know, there's a lot of talk about like a stem cell, right? Talk about pluripotent stem cells. They're like the kind of, you know, primordial cell of a human that could become any other cell and serve any purpose. So we talk a lot about stem cells for people that have suffered traumatic brain injuries, because if you can stimulate the growth of neurons, you could potentially heal these injuries. Neurons typically don't replicate once you're an adult as is, but if you can... You, if you can drive a stem cell to go down that differentiation pathway and become a neuron, you know, then you could potentially heal these types of injuries. What's happening really is it's just a change in expression of your whole genome, right? If you think about every cell has your entire genome from start to finish, it means that every cell has the ability to be, to serve any purpose in the body. But what happens is that the way, the parts of it that are expressed in a given cell are different. So you might have your sequence of interest on your gene, but 
thousands of uh, kilobase pairs upstream, you may have sequences that don't look like they're associated, right? Like they're not in, they're not right next to each other. Like if you think about you're reading a book, they're not the sentence before. It's like foreshadowing, like 10 yeah. chapters earlier, the sequence has this thing. Sometimes we'll call that like a promoter sequence. And what will happen is at it, the promoter sequence might really be the part that encourages the DNA to unravel, unzip itself so that it can be read by RNA polymerase or DNA polymerase, depending on what's being done. And the promoter sequence will have, you know, specific sequence and it will bind another protein, a promoter protein that will come in. And again, it will encourage the DNA to start zipping apart. There's all these other sequences too up there that might be called things like enhancers or even uh, ones that will turn off the genes mm -hmm. that will prevent expression. And what happens is this whole long chain starts to kind of based on these, the way these proto proteins are associating enhancers and promoter regions and opening the DNA sequence up, it'll kind of fold over itself and it'll make an area of the genome more accessible to those proteins that want to replicate it or transcribe it or translate it, sorry. Transcribe. Transcribe. Did it set it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Trust yourself. So when we were talking earlier about, right, like this is all a game of probabilities, right? Yeah. Things are just smacking into each other. This is a way that your cell is is weighting the dice, so to mm -hmm. speak. It's playing the game in its favor because it wants to make this specific type of protein. Sometimes this can happen in, this will happen in response to things in your environment. You know, certain you know, certain um, stimuli in your environment might trigger a chemical response in the cell. That chemical response is going to change how some proteins behave. It's going to start the upregulation of certain genes. You know, it might be in response to certain types of stressors or things like that. Um, even for example, right, caffeine addiction is a really common thing we talk about. Caffeine binds to a specific protein in the body. When those proteins are, um, the, the protein when unbound generates the feeling of tiredness. It's one of its, its effects. When it's bound by caffeine, that signal turns off. So it gives you this feeling of not being as tired. But when the body knows that those proteins are being taken up and not firing the way they normally should, it starts to produce more of them. So that's why you need to drink more and more coffee to get the same level of relief. Um, and this is even having, this will happen like within the day. So if you have like a huge amount of coffee first thing in the morning, your body starts producing more copies of this protein. And then you're going to feel more tired later in the day. Mm, um, interesting. Right. So it's just, this is just to show like there's a chemical stressor. It causes this change in gene expression as a result of stimuli. Just one example I thought of about like mm -hmm. how you're, you have these different sequences that make it more likely that like the right sequence of your gene will be read. It's like if you're playing a video game and you walk into a room and you have to find something and it's glowing. Yeah. Right? Like you're, yeah. Walk, you're like, you're going to walk over and you're going to go to the glowing thing. Cause you're like. Oh, well, obviously this is what I need to go to, right? Like you, you find the easier thing. That's a really good analogy. I think Thank you. because, because <laughs> it is like you, when you, if you play a number of video games, you start to learn these things. There's tricks that video game designers use to drive your attention to certain areas. Or you're yeah. like, you can start to be like, I know that the developers hidden a chest behind that wall yeah. or, you know, that if I take this left turn, it's a dead end, but there'll be something at the end of it. Yeah. Cause you start to learn. It's the same sort of thing. Right. And it's yeah. a, it's an idea in plays as well. It's like, it's a theory from Chekhov of like you can't put a gun on stage in the first act and then not fired in the second yeah. act mm -hmm. right so it's like drawing your attention to these things or like what you said foreshadowing is a really good one too yeah exactly yeah. so this is to say that you know we typically think about the gene this very short part about the DNA but there's all these other parts of your DNA that have nothing to do with the specific protein that's being produced but yeah it's just like 
again, a theater thing, but like if you read a play and you just read it and you don't know anything about its context, you'll get something from it, but you won't get as much about it as if you go and learn about the author and the time period it was written in and the place it was written in and like the, the geopolitical and economic times it was written in. Then you get such a deeper grasp and you can actually understand what it's about as opposed to like just reading the play completely devoid of context. Just reading the gene is reading it completely devoid of context. And the context is so important. Yeah, especially in terms of like, yeah, if we're specifically talking about like gene expression. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding how a gene is expressed, it does. It makes all the difference in the world to like what kind of cell it is, certain types of diseases and things like that. So epigenetics is, so we often talk about um, nature versus nurture, right? Uh, are two identical twins that are separated at birth, do they become the same individual or do they become different individuals? Because their genomes are the same. Mm -hmm right, for most intents and purposes, um, or are they different because of their upbringing? And so this is something that epigenetics starts to hint at. And the, complicate. And complicate. <laughs> the effect of nature, on, or the effect of nurture on nature, and the effect on our gene expression. So we talked about how, you know, DNA is this long strand, 3.1 billion base pairs. But chromosomes are these tightly bound little you know it's like you you balled up a thing of yarn into a little x and you know some people make felt chromosomes oh, yeah. kind of cute right yeah. but yeah it's like it's all balled up but how does it store itself so tightly right and because because it's only stored like that when it's getting ready to replicate because you want to make this tight little package of dna so you can split it perfectly and divide them up and make two cells with exactly the right number of copies and make sure that you like yeah you split it up and then you can trap it again easily without having it like floating around and yeah it's, all it's, arms going everywhere yeah. kind of thing right like, like putting your dog on a leash as opposed to just yeah. letting them run away or are all arms inside the vehicle while yeah. the ride is in motion and but so the part of the way that it binds itself up and it takes up less space and again it makes it more stable so it's less likely to be broken down or have random mutations happen one of these proteins is called a histone and the histone is essentially like a spool that the dna can bind itself around and when the dna is wrapped around a histone it cannot be accessed by this cellular machinery so part of what's being done to express a gene is proteins that are allowing the histones to kind of unwind sections of the dna then break those double strands up and start either DNA transcription or replication. And then it'll close it back up afterwards. But there are changes that the cell can do to these histones to cause the binding to be un like it's like at the time while these things are activated, impossible to unwind mm -hmm. and it will turn off the expression of certain genes so one of these is called uh it's a process called methylation it involves putting methyl ch3 groups on the ends of parts of the proteins of the histone and it just it just locks them up and it means that they can't be opened you can demethylate those same areas and then you reactivate those genes and this is all happening in response to things in the environment lots of different things can trigger the process that causes methylation at different sites, depending on the proteins and the, you know, the stimuli and the things that they are triggering. That makes sense. Cause if you, it almost feels like it has to do with like a safety element. Like you don't yeah. want your, you don't want your DNA unraveling if it's not safe to do so. If there's anything that could degrade your DNA. Or if or... you very specific, if you just have no use for specific types of genes. So yeah. often they talk about epigenetics firstly, uh, as it relates to like trauma and stress and mm. that like if you are if your organism is in a heightened state of flight and flight flight or fight response say over and for a long period of time like a chronic state of fight or flight 
your your body may start to say like you know all of, say all of this stuff that kind of communicates in its own way is going to start saying to itself okay we don't need to produce you know we don't need to produ be producing the proteins that are responsible for storing all our energies in fat say that's maybe not a real example but just like things that are only required when a organism has like time to relax and is at rest like but we need to be putting more energy into creating muscle or burning lactic acid like doing using proteins that are going to help us stay at a heightened state of awareness for longer periods and it's going to start turning off some of these other genes and then as that chronic state starts to relax they might change back right and then it starts to say but it's a more permanent change than the short term like okay we need to turn this on really quick it's more this, okay, we need to keep this on and not waste any energy doing anything else. Yeah. We talk a little bit about the long-term effects of trauma in our uh, ECE, our Early Childhood mm -hmm. Education podcast, if you're a bit more curious on the social aspects of that. Mm -hmm. And then you can also look at this in terms of chronic disease. And the mm -hmm. reason why chronic disease can be so bad is because your body's typically in a, in a prolonged state of inflammation. Yeah. And inflammation has a bunch of issues in your body, like causes a bunch of issues in your body. So yeah, so anytime you have a, an organism in a long-term state of something it's going to like focus its resources there and be like okay obviously this is not just happening right now it's happening for a while so we will accept that and we'll stop producing all this other stuff mm -hmm. exactly and so the interesting thing that they're they're seeing about epigenetics is so for the most part the epigenetic changes at the cellular level are reversible right you can shut a gene off and turn it back on you can fold it up and you can unfold you know you can coil it back up and you can uncoil it but Interestingly, what they're starting to realize with some, what epigenetics may affect is that it might result in permanent changes to an organism, right? Because you don't have to have permanent changes at your DNA level to have, you know, your organism affected, right? Because if you're producing different proteins and things like that at a time of development, it will change how that organism develops. So there's a lot of studies around like, do epigenetic changes like a specifically trauma response in infants and children impact their development and create permanent changes down the line? And there's I've also heard about epigenetics with uh, like weight in particular reference to weight. So mm. if there's the parents are like very, very overweight, then it will affect their epigenetics in a certain way. And then they'll pass that epigenetic um, leaning essentially onto their offspring. Yeah. And then their offspring might have a like a really easy time gaining weight and a much harder time losing weight because of the epigenetics they inherited from their, yeah. their adult. And that's a big thing that we didn't touch on yet too, is that the early science shows that, yeah, epigenetics can result in inheritable traits yes. or tendencies of traits. And then this is where it starts to become very, the nuanced conversation around nature versus nurture and the, the role that epigenetics plays is right. Because yeah, like, because not only like to take your example of like obese parents with obese children, you know, a lot of times that's as well because like you have parents who, you know, they were, they, there's not enough time to make home cooked meals. There's not enough money in the house. So yeah. it's a lot of frozen foods or, you know, takeout dinners and stuff like that. Or there's a lot of like cultures and families who they express love through food and it's like, it'll be high fat, high sugar sort of food. Exactly. Right. So yeah. that's part of the nurture aspect where it's like, well, yeah, like of course then your children are going to have a harder time losing weight if they're being fed all of, you know, not as nutritious foods or whatever it might be for whatever reasons. Yeah. But then, but so what it's, you know, how do you separate the role that the epigenetic changes are, are playing a role versus like your actual 
just how you're being like the actual stimulus in the real world right and because both will probably be happening but what can you contribute one to the other what comes first the chicken or the egg and it's so this is what becomes so interesting and it's why sometimes like this is a very new thing like this is something that we're only just starting to talk about when i was in undergrad like it had been the knowledge of it had been around for a little bit but it was, it was only really starting to become this, like, this is a real thing that affects way more than we've ever thought it did. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you talk about this concept to people and they're just like, there's no way that that's true. That sounds like, you know, hodgepodge. That sounds like nonsense. It was taking an idea that we thought was fairly black and white, right? Like yes. nature versus nurture. And you're Your like, actually. Your genes tell everything you need to know. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, actually, it's a big gray zone. Mm-hmm. There's like a little bit of black on one side and a little bit of white on the other side. And all the rest is gray. Yeah. And people don't like that, right? Like people like black and white. They like yeah. like dichotomies, and it's they're easier to understand because epigenetics is like very complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. It's the same thing with like what we were talking about with replication and uh, transcription earlier, translation and protein synthesis. Is we typically just think about it as singular strand of DNA. Protein comes in, binds perfectly, does its job, reads yeah. it like a typewriter, and it's done, right? Versus like the way I've tried to describe it here where it's like it's chaos in solution but the the probability manipulation of well now I've made it one ten thousandth of a time more likely that you're going to hit me and bind instead of over here eventually it's going to happen yeah right basically it's biology and biology is always messy Mm -hmm. biology is super messy all the time yeah there's an exception to everything and and that's and in, especially in terms of genetics, that's so what's so fascinating, right? You can sit here and say, okay, well, there are organisms that need oxygen to survive. Look, all organisms need it. Yeah, that's it's not an incorrect statement to say that because like 99.99999% of species, that is true. But then, of course, there's that one insect from the hydrotherm at the bottom <laughs> of the ocean that, you know, is never seen a molecule of oxygen in its life, right? You know, like there's so many... There's so much diversity on the earth. There's so many unique environments where life has managed to take root. Life is pretty resilient from, you know, a billions of t- years time scale. So it's interesting, right? That like everything in biology has these little exceptions. And that's what, why we continue to like research and do all these different things. Yeah. So I think we want, uh, did you want to talk a little bit more about epigenetics? Or I think we kind of move into maybe wrapping up into like why, why all this matters. Why do we care? Yeah, I think I'll just have one more thing. Sure, but, absolutely. So epigenetics, they, we've mentioned, they can start, like, in vitro, even, or in utero, even before, like, they can affect you for your entire life. It changes as you age. Think about the way that our genes express differently as we get older, like, hair color is a pretty obvious mm-hmm. visual one. Um, but also, like, certain infections by genes can alter your epigenetics. If uh, your immune system responds and then it helps the germ survive, then you're like the germ will encourage your body to continue doing that and it can alter your uh, epigenetics that way. There's certain epigenetic changes can increase risks of cancer. So uh, an example I found from the CDC was like how a mutation in the BRCA1, so this is a gene, BRCA1 gene, that prevents it from working properly makes you more likely to get breast and other cancers. So a mutation, this would be like, this is like the, like the hard genetics or whatever, right? Like it's a change in the, the gene itself. Um, but increased DNA methylation, like Davis talked about, um, that results in decreased BRCA1 gene expression will also raise your risk for breast and other cancers. So that would be an epigenetic change that increases the DNA methylation on this one section. So your gene doesn't, like, you don't have as much of it working, basically, or accessible to working. And it can cause the same change, the same deleterious effect as an actual mutation in the gene. Mm -hmm. 
So why, why is this significant? Why is the work that originally inspired us to talk about this topic? Um, what, why is it important? Why does it make such a big sort of like fuss when things like that? Uh, this are completed because it's changing people long term. Well, th that's yeah for epigenetics <laughs> and stuff. A big part of this is that there's a ton of things that can be done when, like we talked about with like the human genome, kind of gave us this platform to stand on. The human genome project this gave us this platform to stand on and build genetic understanding off of and make new breakthroughs and things like that. This is very similar. And there are a lot of different projects or ideas around what you can do when you can fully sequence a person, an individual person's genome with a high degree of accuracy very quickly for low cost. And one of them is in medicine. And this idea that, you know, you can tailor medications or courses of treatments. If you know someone's exact protein expression, you know, their whole genome, and you know that they're suffering from a particular disease, and you know what proteins are responsible for that disease's expression, and which medications impact them, then you can give the person exactly the medications they need to fix the genes that they're having problem with, problems with, rather than saying, okay, well, let's try this medication. Oh, you find it's got too many side effects that's affecting you this way. Okay, let's try this one, right? It cuts down on some of that and it allows medicine to become very personalized to the individual and potentially in an imagined, you know, ideal situation, a future state, you know, to be highly effective as well, like far more effective than it is today. Of course, there's a big thing around this too with genetic engineering. Yeah, that's more what I was talking about, affecting people yeah. over a long period of time. Yeah, right? <laughs> because if you know the entire genome, then you can start figuring out what each parts of that genome do and which parts cause disease or aging or deleterious effects or whatever it might be, things you want to change about a person. You can start doing genetic engineering or you can figure out areas where you want to insert genes if you want to introduce new traits, all sorts of stuff. And this can be... Like the, the positive side of this is like if you, you know, maybe you discover your family does have a history of a certain type of heritable disease then and you like get pregnant and then you your doctor can be like, oh, yes, your baby does like your baby in utero does have this gene editing in theory could go in and change that deleterious version for the good copy, like for the normal copy. And then your kid won't have it and you've wiped it from the gene line. Mm -hmm. Right. But. That's a problem because now you're affecting the germline and that's, so that means you're affecting future generations without anyone's consent that you're changing their, mm -hmm. their genome. And we don't know what the long-term effects of these sorts of changes would be. Mm -hmm. And this is too, sometimes, uh, just to bring it back, I wanted to make sure I talked about a gene cassette quick, right? Right. Because this is something that's used in genetic engineering. Um, and often you talk about CRISPR, which is a technique for inserting new genes. And it's particularly effective in eukaryotes. We talked a bit about plasmids, which is a method that's more used for like bacterial or certain types of plant cells and things like that. A simple ring of DNA. Yeah. And a gene cassette and is the entire sequence that you are going to insert. And we call it a gene cassette because it's like we talked about, not only is the gene important, but you might have to insert certain promoter sequences, certain leading sequences, certain introns and exons even, right? In order to create this entire construction that once inserted into a new organism will work in that organism. So sometimes it's like you take the gene from one species, but you have to take the promoter from the species that you're inserting into mm. and other sequences from the, the organism that you're going, that it's going to be in because it has different proteins that want to bind. Yeah. And then you take that whole thing, you insert it into whatever technique you're using, and then you splice it into the gene. Interesting. Because yeah, you need to have a way to like basically transit or make this new thing less alien yeah. to what you're putting it in. Exactly. And 
and make sure that it's going to be functional and that it'll be expressed to the level that you need yeah. it expressed. Man, I love it's called a cassette. Like for us, it makes so much sense. But for all the people who didn't grow up with cassettes, now yeah. they got to go figure out what a cassette is to be like, oh, it's slotting in there like it did in a yeah. old and school Walkman. That's exactly where it comes from. And that's what the diagrams look like too. You kind of, yeah. it's like a big, like two parallel lines and you chunk them up and you yeah. say, oh, this is the five prime untranslated region. And like, again, so it's more stable and stuff like that. So, and again, if you sequence whole genomes, you can start to develop other parts, you know, tools to build the, the, the non-coding parts of your cassettes to make them more effective, more effective in particular organisms. And as you do more other organisms, you can start to learn, you might discover new genes that do new things, right? And then you can insert them into other plants or organisms. You know, some uh, cancer medications are made this way. You take a gene from a particular type of tree that doesn't grow very fast and you put it in a different tree that produces something kind of similar and you produce a precursor molecule that can then be transformed into the drug of choice. Whoa. There's lots of like little manipulation stuff that's telling you this. Um, a, a good example is a golden rice has been trialed right. all over the world, particularly in areas where they're very impoverished and food resources are, are very difficult and crops are very difficult to keep alive and stuff. Rice is very hardy. Rice doesn't have a lot of vitamin A, which is really, really important in particular in, in environments that where food is not readily available, it's hard to get enough vitamin A. It's really important to your development and health. So if you genetically engineer a rice species to produce vitamin A, now you've created a staple food that can be grown very easily in a lot of different environments, but is then going to be packed with this nutrient that it wouldn't normally have. Yeah. 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 And this is where, you know, sorry to touch on it, just to touch on it very quickly, like, where some of the issues around people's misunderstanding of genetic engineering and what yeah. goes into it come from. Yeah. No GMOs. Yeah, because, so golden rice would classify as a genetically modified organism. People forget that we've literally been genetically modifying organisms for hundreds of thousands of years. For or as long, thousands of years, not hundreds. For as long as humans have been involved in agriculture, we have been doing it. Because you just breed together the hardiest ones. Or like, if you look at like ancient... Uh, ancient maize species yeah. versus the the modern corn plant. Yep. They're, they're so different, or wheat compared to modern wheat plants. Yeah. And it, it was pretty much done to increase yield and increase survivability of the plant. Yeah. That's and, where it starts. And all that's done, all that's changed is our tools to do it. Whereas yeah. like we were saying with, you know, a rabidopsis, you might need, you might want to see seven generations down the line as you select for traits. Now you can do that in a single generation because you can just insert the trait that you want yeah. rather than trying to build up its prevalence in the you know the community of organisms essentially yeah um but so for example with golden rice you know this misunderstanding around gmos and people's fear that the machinery that's used to make that change is still there and it will alter your genome it's where some of this fear comes from yeah. results in people like there were test crops uh in i can't remember specifically where th these test crops were but there were a number of them that were being piloted around the world and a few like activist groups went and burned the fields down. Whoa. Right. And the problem is, is like, cause they're saying, well, we don't want this genetically modified organism to be used like around the world and stuff like that, but they're not rec But you know, the problem is, is that, well, now you're putting behind this work by, you know, years, potentially decades because they can't, they can't research if it's safe or not. Yeah. These are not, you're not, you know, and it's just a misunderstanding. And this is again, one of these things that it's, it's more on science and scientists and the institution of science, our responsibility to educate people on 
you know, genetics and gene engineering and be honest about the risks that exist, how they're mitigated, and to be very upfront about as things like CRISPR start to become more and more common, the bioethics of it. Yeah. And with the, with like plants and and the concerns over GMO plants and stuff, I think one of the concerns that I always came across was that of like escape of not the necessarily the mechanism, the mechanism that causes the change, but like, what if this species now crossbreeds with a natural species and then their offspring species is really hardy and outcompetes all of the natural species. So you could wipe out a natural species, but with something like golden rice, it seems like it's mostly just. Yeah, it also has vitamin A, like, oh, what a good thing for humans. Um, but then if you're looking at, like, labs and stuff, like when I did work with, they're called Arabidopsis mutants, right? Because you get a mutant. You have to dispose of it in, like, very strict ways. Yeah. Like, the the idea of, like, escape for these sorts of things, anything in the lab is very, very strict. It's like, yeah. you're only allowed to dispose of it in certain places. You can't take them home. You have to, like... There's, there's a lot of rules and regulations. And if by the time something is getting out into field testing, it will have gone through a lot of stages yeah. so that anything too deleterious is not going to be present in the one that they're going to try to put out in nature. Yeah. And uh, on top of this, a lot of companies, I think it's mostly been for economic reasons, but like companies that sell seeds, they will sell uh, a version of the seed that will grow like a version of the plant that typically is like a triploid or something. So three copies of the DNA, which means it cannot replicate Yeah. because it, it, it's not able to split its genes evenly, right? So when it tries to make its gametes, uh, they're not going to be able to do anything. Yeah. So you could always, for a lot of these sorts of organisms, you just make them, you put them in a state where it's like, this is sterile, it will produce fruit, but that fruit has no chance of making seeds yeah. that will produce more plants. Yeah, sometimes it's a requirement for certain types yeah. of genetically modified organisms that you turn off that capability. And yeah. then there are, yeah, like groups like Monsanto that have done it for economic reasons and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think that's just like, it's a bit of a flyover, right? There, this this topic, I mean... There's like, so much more detail yeah. you can go into. There's so much detail. There's so much nitty gritty stuff, um, you know, but this is really like the genomics thing and understanding genomes. Again, it's this platform upon which this entire genetic science that has these amazing and potentially terrifying potential (laughs) applications, but it's what makes it all possible. And this is really about, this is like, in essence, this is like the periodic table, right? Not exactly identical, obviously, but in the same way that the development of the periodic table unlocked, you know, the organization of chemistry and allowed it to, grow like the subject to kind of grow unabated because now you have this hard centralized you know platform upon which everyone was working and was so well constructed that it left room for the parts that we didn't know about yet for people to fill in Mm -hmm. so people were encouraged to build on that platform this is very similar in that this is a very strong platform and a platform on a platform of understanding, right? This is years and years and years, decades from the 1920s when genome was come up, came up with and nobody wanted to use it because it didn't really mean what, you know, what we thought it meant or it didn't have, it didn't, it didn't have its place. It didn't have its usage yet. And then net to now where it's kind of, you know, again, people are shipping off their genome to, you know, companies all over the world to find out who they're related to. I highly suggest you don't do it, but that's topic for another day. Yeah, I'll keep my my genome to myself. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Awesome. Well, yeah, 
I think that's uh, I think that's a pretty good little overview of this subject. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next. We had a few different... We've kind of talked about maybe doing the periodic table. We've kind of talked about a few other ones. We have some other short list options. Yeah, we, we, have, we have a list. Yeah. But if there's something in particular you're very curious about, let us know. If something really strongly shows up in the news that we haven't covered, then perhaps we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, uh, if you're liking the show, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at uh, Instagram Temporary Experts, uh, Twitter Temporary Expert, because of character limit. Um, <laughs> uh, and if you are looking for Facebook, you can follow Third Sock from the Sun on Facebook. Yep. I always make sure to post about our posts. Same with Instagram. Mm-hmm. Post. Give us a uh, like or a follow if you're up for it. Yes, or a review if you're really enjoying it. Uh, yep. Subscribe if you haven't subscribed to us on whatever listening platform you do. All of this helps us hack the al- algorithm and find more listeners just like you, and you're great. Yes, you are. <laughs> Amazing. Well, so for all of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and we have been your Temporary, Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening. I'm not sure if 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 I'